On September 28, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar titled Hashtag Tech for Democracy, Meet the Changemakers. Panelists included Tiana Epps Johnson, founder and executive director of the Center for Technology and Civic Life, Ray Faustino, CEO, founder and board chair at One Degree, Seth Flaxman, co-founder and executive director of Democracy Works, and Denise Lin, program analyst with Smart Chicago. The seminar was moderated by Archon Fung, Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship and Academic Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was part of Hub Week, a creative festival founded by the Boston Globe, Harvard University, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Mass General Hospital to celebrate innovation at the intersection of art, science, and technology. The event was also co-sponsored by Harvard Kennedy School's Tech Pick. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Society has appointed him basically as his job to be like, I can give you 30 more days before you're homeless. Like, where? Sorry. <laughs> like, there's like no place for people. So. It's crazy. New York's a crazy place. That is like the big downside of it. <laughs> I know, I feel, guys, I'm sorry, I'm like, I'm chair privileged right now. <laughs> yeah. Let me know if I need to check my chair privilege at any time during our conversation. <laughs> Why can't everyone else I, I just, just cross their I legs? <laughs> I can cross my legs. And I like. I also am always grateful about the amount of melanin in my body, and like not yeah. letting me blush as much as I feel like I would otherwise. I know. I like. It's, a, it's like I'm not doing it actually intelligently. I'm like, <laughs> like it just. I'm like things will get scheduled months in advance. Like. Oh God, those are the same day in different cities. How could I do this to myself? <laughs> Can I tell you that? We'll pull it off. You guys are just so busy. So I yeah. Uh, I mean, there's at this point I'm fairly useless because we're like the devs are like you know they're like finding efficiencies in the site. We have a lot of traffic. And I never did introduction. I just never. Like no, I, I, I don't, I'm not even a lurker. I can't like, bring on new partners. Like, I never did my like, introduction. Like, no. It's so awkward. Yeah. So mostly I just like am in the office when people are like freaking out. So I'm gonna like, I'm like, let's just talk for a second. Like so that's you know I just do like a little boss psychologist time, and that's <laughs> that's like my entire contribution. So I'm not doing that right now because I'm not um, around to calm people down. <laughs> uh, 22. Yeah, that's crazy. I've got a lot better. Yeah. Uh, we're still in Brooklyn, although about half the team is remote. Or like we have, a, we have like five people in Denver, and then um, yeah, just because it's cheaper to hire engineers in Denver. Yeah, um, and then once you're a part of that network, it's like actually easier to keep hiring there than um, you know all over the place. But. 
Uh, are you guys, do you have remote employees, or are you all in no, together? I haven't worked either. I'm thinking about, we're actually going to be hiring with two engineers soon. Maybe this will be expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nightmare. It's literally crazy. Like, it's just people are, like, fighting, like, to the mail for engineers. Right. This is literally, like, three or four years ago. It's totally nuts. I'm just going to snap. Is that weird? Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Ash Center for our hashtag Tech for Democracy Meet the Changemakers event. So if you want to live tweet this, it's hashtag, I guess all tweets are live, um, hashtag <laughs> Tech for Democracy. <laughs> so tonight's event is a part of Hub Week. For those of you who haven't been to other Hub Week events, this is the second annual instance of Hub Week, which is a huge collaboration between the Boston Globe, Harvard University, MIT, the Mass General Hospitals, and many other organizations. It, uh, Hub Week comes together to celebrate all of the great people and the great ideas in Boston. It's about arts, it's about innovation, and this year it's about inclusion and uh, inclusive innovation in particular. This year, Harvard's programs will explore pathways for increased civic engagement, advances in the life sciences, and new uses of the arts. We're thrilled to contribute to this university-wide and city-wide collaboration with our event this evening. Uh, we encourage you to learn more about Hub Week by visiting the website, hubweek.org. Easy enough, right? So public innovation is the theme of tonight's event. Here's the puzzle. Nearly every area of public, our private lives, has been transformed by innovations that utilize digital technologies. Think about the ways that we socialize with one another on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any number of other uh, digital social networking platforms. Think about the ways that we buy and consume things, right? About three or four years ago, we loved it that Amazon could get you anything you wanted in two weeks. And now they can get you anything you want in two days. And in some cities like San Francisco, already it's two hours, right? And I think it's only going to go down from there. The, think about the host of on-demand services that we get, whether it's food, transport, even lodging, right? It's transformed all of these ways in which we live our private lives. But it's hard to name, for me anyway, maybe some ideas will come up here, of instances in which digital technologies have profoundly changed and improved the public aspects of our lives, the ways that we perform the duties and expressions of citizenship, in ways that we govern each other, in ways that we experience government. When we, most of us, when most of us go vote, if most of us are going to vote in November, the experience will be much like it has been for the last three or four decades. I will go to a public school gymnasium, I'll line up for a while, I'll take a little black marker, and I'll fill out a basically a standardized test form and shove it into some machine that sucks it up and increases some counter ticker mechanism. Right? In some areas, technology seems to have made our public lives worse, not better, by, some people would say, fragmenting the ways in which we receive information and what counts as a fact and who we talk with about politics, and in other ways. But we at the Ash Center believe that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. <laughs> and we have four great innovators here to help us light a few candles. 
Tiana Epps Johnson was uh, one of our inaugural Technology and Democracy Fellows last year. She is founder and executive director of the Center for Technology and Civic Life. Uh, and her organization provides resources and training to support local election administrators uh, in ways that they run elections and communicate with voters, among other things. Ray Faustino earned his master's in public policy right here from the Kennedy School in 2012. And shortly after that, Ray launched One Degree, which is an effort based in San Francisco and now moving out to other places to ensure that all families have access to the services, social services in particular, that they need to overcome poverty. Ray is an alumnus of Y Combinator, Echoing Green Fellow, and an Education Pioneers Fellow. He was nominated for the inaugural Visionary a Year Award by the San Francisco Chronicle, and in his spare time, Ray practices yoga, plays with <laughs> gadgets, and builds furniture from scratch. I did not know that. That's true. <laughs> Seth Flaxman earned his MPP right here at the Kenny School in 2001 while at HKS. 11. Yeah, right, 2001. <laughs> I got here around 2001. You wouldn't look like it. You're extremely well-preserved. <laughs> while at HKS, uh, in his second year, Seth co-founded Democracy Works with an another alumna, Catherine Peters. And in that same year, Seth was honored with Catherine as one of Fortune Magazine's 30 under 30 in the field of law and public policy. He's a Draper Richards Kaplan entrepreneur and Ashoka Fellow. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, where he previously worked as a research associate. Denise Lin earned her master's here in public policy in 2015, not 2005. <laughs> and at HKS, Denise spearheaded an impressive campaign across the student body, faculties, and centers of HKS to boost our tech offerings, and it's worked. We have many more now than we did in 2015. In many ways, we have Denise to thank for events like uh, the one here tonight. She is a program analyst for the Smart Chicago Collaborative, where she develops, executes, and manages the evaluation of smart Chicago programming projects. Denise is primarily, has primary responsibility for the day-to-day -day activities of Connect Chicago, the Chicago School of Data, and other day, data engagement projects around Chicago. Okay, so now I thought we would begin by asking all of the fellows a general question that will allow them to introduce themselves and a little bit of their work, and then we'll move into some specific exchanges that are about each of the different, all exciting, but all quite different projects uh, that you guys are engaged in, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. So the general question is this. All four of you are amazing innovators in the field of the field that we're calling civic technology. It's a big umbrella, or technology and governance. And what innovators do is that they are able to spot some pain point that people have and develop a solution that moves the ball forward a little bit. And in private, I actually believe that private sector innovation is behind not because people are more stupid or decrepit or bureaucratic, but because it's fundamentally more difficult problem. And we can talk about why that is in a while, but all of you are moving the ball forward for public problems and addressing pain points. So if you could talk a little bit, start the conversation by telling a short version of your origin story if you were a superhero. <laughs> what is the pain point that originally got you started on this journey? What, and how did you spot that pain point out there 
and then tell a little bit about how you're trying to address the pain point. Great. Maybe Tiana. Hi again, everybody. Um, so big picture, again, our work at the Center for Technology and Civic Life is, um, I think we're oh, right, yeah, is focused on helping local election officials build uh, data and digital skills to be more effective at running elections. And we do that through actually training them and building free and low-cost tools for them to use to more effectively do their work. Um, I actually, my abbreviated origin story is that I started this work in civic tech uh, in 2010, working with secretaries of state and state boards of election, helping them to publish standardized feeds of polling place and other information uh, in an open format so that tech companies and civic engagement organizations could build tools to help connect voters with this critical piece of information. And after a couple of years working with folks on the state level, it became really clear that some of the biggest challenges around the voting process and like finding answers to the really basic questions that voters have um, or just everyone's uh, everyday experience with uh, the voting process specifically is really the responsibility of local election officials um, more so than um, the folks at the state level and so um, it became clear that there was this opportunity to really engage with these folks at the county or town level and helping them to figure out how to modernize their work. And that if we were able to be effective at this, that there was a huge potential for impact greater than what I saw with the work that I was doing at the state level. And so at the same time as we identified this opportunity to help local election officials modernize the way that they were doing their work, we also didn't want to be prescriptive with the solutions for how uh, we might improve the voting process at the local level. And so our team in 2013 got in a minivan for off and on for about six months and we traveled around the country and we met with local election officials in their offices and at conferences. And we asked basically two main questions. One, what are you really proud of? Uh, what is the type of innovation that's happening in your office that you're excited about? And that's always a really good conversation starter um, to talk about things that people are excited about. And then we would transition into asking questions about what folks saw as challenges in their work. And after having conversations with nearly 100 election officials, there were some really clear trends about both challenges and solutions to some of the ways that the elections field still really lags behind uh, with advancements in technology. The two big challenges that election officials identified uh, for themselves in these conversations was one, keeping pace with new technology, uh, and two, uh, finding it challenging to communicate with voters. And as a voter, this was something that I had experienced uh, in, in my own life. And uh, having worked in civic tech, I also recognized that those were challenges. And so it was helpful to hear from election officials that they also felt them. And Based on those conversations, we then started to develop program around how to specifically address um, sort of this, what we really saw at its root as a skills gap for election <coughs> officials, that a lot of these folks had been in their jobs for 5, 10, 15 years, and the way that people expect every sector to communicate with them has changed a lot, but these folks don't have a background in technology. They oftentimes don't have dedicated tech staff, um, but there was an eagerness to learn and build skills so they could better do this type of work themselves. And so we built out what we call the electricity program, and again, we do direct digital and data training, and we also build tools like electiontool.org, which is a toolkit for uh, election officials that we launched 
launched in June um, to really help officials, regardless of their tech skills or background, uh, learn how to be more effective at communicating with voters and to use data in how they actually allocate resources so that we don't see things like long lines at polling places. Hi, everybody. Thanks to Archon and the Ash Center for inviting me. It's such an honor to like come back to the alma mater where I started one degree and to tell the story about the organization. So I started One Degree um, for two reasons and two pain points in my life. So I grew up as a low-income immigrant from the Philippines. Family moved here to the United States um, in the early 90s. And, you know, my parents are super hardworking people, yet it was so difficult for us to find and understand how to navigate the resources in our community, everything from, like, immigration resources to health to things as simple as, like, after-school programs and summer programs. We had no idea how to navigate the system, and that led me to work in the nonprofit sector, working with low-income youth in, in nonprofit education world, and I found the same exact issues there. Uh, every single week we had some student going through some crisis, whether it was homelessness or abuse or hunger, and I was always looking for some sort of service to help uh, my students. And even though there are you know, thousands in the Bay Area and millions of nonprofits across the country, I was stuck finding these resources on paper, like, binders. And if you remember, like, the plastic sleeves you put in the binder <laughs> and you'd stick, like, the flyer inside the plastic sleeve, by the time I looked at the piece of paper, the address changed or the hours changed or the phone numbers changed. And this was not that long ago. This was, like, in the early, like, 2005. And I thought this was crazy. We're here in, uh, this is in the Bay Area where I started one degree here in the middle of the most innovative region in the world, where right down the street we have Google, uh, and we have Facebook and Sun Microsystems, and uh, we are using all this amazing technology to advance uh, you know, the, the lives of middle-class uh, middle and wealthy citizens, but we weren't using any of that technology for our most vulnerable populations, and I thought that was uh, absolutely nuts. So I started one degree in response to that. I wrote the business plan here at the Kennedy School and launched it right afterwards in order to address the situation uh, and to make it a, a significantly easier for low-income families to find and access the critical social services that are right in their communities. And you can check it out at www.onedegree.org, and you can find resources from immigration resources, health, affordable housing, uh, how to access benefits, et cetera. And over the last four years since, we've, uh, since I launched the organization, we've had over 150,000 uh, people in the Bay Area utilize the platform in San Francisco and Alameda counties, and we estimate that we've reached about one in four low-income households with, uh, with one degree in the Bay Area, which is really exciting uh, for me to see that. And the most important thing for me when I, when I do this is that we're, we're kind of like changing the script about what people think about poverty. We believe that poverty does not have to be a life sentence, and also there are millions of people across the country uh, who work in nonprofit organizations and who work uh, in social services who also believe that their resources can help families do that. Uh, and so we want to empower low-income families to, uh, to find and access those resources right in their neighborhoods. Denise? <laughs> uh, so my superhero origin story. Um, so uh, I've been at Smart Chicago, the Smart Chicago Collaborative, for about a year. And interestingly, uh, we have similar origin stories, myself and the organization. I really started getting interested in technology and technology access issues um, as an AmeriCorps VISTA. And I was stationed in North Carolina at Winston-Salem during a program, a federal program, called the Broadband Technology Opportunity Project. 
um, and I see some people nodding, so they might know what that means, which is great. Um, it was a federal uh, grant program that distributed funds to nonprofits and cities to increase internet access and digital training across the country and to start to close the digital divide. And so I was on the ground in North Carolina, and I did service in Eastern Carolina, um, rural Virginia, and rural West Virginia to work with communities um, and start to think about, you know, just access problems, fundamental information access barriers. And Smart Chicago, uh, before I knew what Smart Chicago was, uh, in the city of Chicago, um, was started during that same period, thinking about the urban digital divide. So from my experience in AmeriCorps, I pivoted from on the ground to high up, um, ended up working at the FCC for several years in Spectrum Options um, on something called the Mobility Fund um, Auction, which was a reverse auction to allocate funds to rural areas again um, to incentivize uh, providers to build networks. And then after that, I went to the Kennedy School and kept thinking about this issue, um, technology access, internet infrastructure, community building, economic development, how all of those things intersected. Uh, and there were just so many resources here and so many great people here for me to work with uh, to think about those things every day. For my PAE, I worked with uh, Google Fiber to think about how, you know, high-speed internet, how the presence of high-speed internet, gigabit internet connectivity actually changes the digital divide and what um, the problems look like in cities with high-speed internet versus cities with maybe normal internet offerings. And from there, I started to think more about cities, um, open data, civic tech. I know in Chicago, for us, um, it's not just about closing gaps with internet access. We're doing several things at once. We're also trying to release more open data, um, build more great, relevant content on top of open data, um, in addition to bridging the digital divide. Uh, and so many cities, not just us, are doing all of these things at once. So there are many technology gaps to narrow and close. And, and that's really how I got involved in this field. Um, I moved to Chicago after I graduated from the Kennedy School. And I've been working at Smart Chicago. Um, and I'm lucky to have hands in a few different technology categories. I work, again, in internet access. Uh, I manage the Connect Chicago initiative, which is a citywide initiative to close the digital divide. And what we're trying to do is just really work with different nonprofits, institutions across the city to understand um, effective programming, uh, to improve internet access, digital skills, um, and to narrow technology gaps. And we also work in data and in civic tech tools. Um, so we really are trying to think about inclusion in lots of different categories. Um, inclusion in access, inclusion in skills, uh, and inclusion in data. Thank you. So I just want to say that the civic tech community that we're all part of is very small. We all know each other very well. Um, so this is a bit of a family reunion, I think, for us and uh, for many years, actually. Um, and for me, my um, I, I also want to say I'm very I want to give a shout out to my co-founder who couldn't be here tonight because uh, Katie's actually running our website during one of the busiest times of the year. <laughs> um, and. Uh, I'm hoping her friends in the audience will let her know that I gave her that shout out. <laughs> Somebody tweeted. Yeah. Um, so the origin story of of Democracy Works and and our sort of flagship program, which is a website called TurboVote, uh, was when I was at the Kennedy School. I came here because I was real interested in why technology was revolutionizing everything except the public sector. And uh, while I was in a, but was all, like all over the place with what I wanted to do with it. 
And uh, while I was here my first semester, both realized that I personally had missed a few elections since coming to the Kennedy School. Um, and I come from a big, like I'm a big elections geek. Like when I was in high school, I would like drive my friends to vote to the polls, to vote in school board elections during our lunch breaks. And um, my family would talk about politics constantly. So I was like, that's weird that I've missed so many elections. I know it is not my fault. I know I don't have an apathy problem. And when I dug into it from a sort of you know, user design perspective, like why did I miss exactly this election? Like what was the hurdle? And I, start, I realized that there were, there, were t there were three different ones. It wasn't even just a single hurdle that had confused me. It was like not knowing that an election was happening at all, local election, not missing a registration deadline, missing a vote by mail deadline. And uh, I went online thinking that the internet had solved all sorts of things. So why couldn't I just like sign up for something that would solve this problem for me too? And was sort of astounded that it did not exist. It seemed like an obvious idea. It still sort of is an obvious idea. Um, to make it easy for people to know what they need to do to be a voter. And uh, talked to my friend uh, and co-founder Katie. I was like, how hard would it be, you think, if you wanted to build a site that took care of this for everyone, where they'd sign up one time, and then they would get all the information they need texted to them. Uh, they would get the forms that they need. And her, her famous last words, like, that'll be easy. <laughs> uh, and... Um, <laughs> It is still not easy four, years, four or five years She's later. Still building that it, is, it is still very hard, and I'm happy to talk about what, what makes it so hard, too. So now uh, we've actually, we do, more, we do a lot more beyond just run turbo vote. For us, the mission is how do we modernize elections for everyone? Doing that means working with government and election directors that Tiana works with. Um, and so we want to get our technology into their hands. And we've also realized that the data underneath TurboVote is also valuable to other people, too, who want to find other ways to reach people with that data. So part of it is actually we inherited a program that Tiana was one of the founding managers on, the Voting Information Project. So now if you Google this fall, like, where do I vote, where is my polling place, all of that data comes from a Pew Google project where we are the ones collecting the data from the states, cleaning it, making sure people can, Google can consume it and other people can find it. Um, so I guess that's all to say there's a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Good. So I have a couple of specific questions for you guys that I hope will be of some general interest. And I, I want to know the answers myself. So largely this is selfish. <laughs> so for uh, Tiana, you know, I told a little story about what it's going to be like when I vote in November, and um, it's going to be true, I think, just about for everybody in Massachusetts. Not everybody in the country, but a lot of us, right? So uh, for me, it's working out okay, um, as it has for many decades, but I have the sense that it could work a lot better, right? Like there's what is the Lyft or the, or the Airbnb or the Amazon of voting, what should, how should voting feel in five years, in 10 years, if we do it right? What should be the citizen experience? Yeah, that's a big question. From the perspective of a voter, voting should feel convenient, it should feel secure. And there's lots of ways that that can and will happen um, over the next five, 10, 15 years. But I'm going to share a few examples, um, starting with before an election, of some of the ways that uh, 
the work can has been modernized. So one thing that's just core is that voters or potential voters should be able to find the information that they need to be able to navigate the process. That looks like polling place information. That looks like finding out what's on their ballot. It looks like knowing when the next election is and not just presidential elections, information all the way down the ballot and about local races. Um, and this sounds really basic. It doesn't sound like the Airbnb of elections, but it's really fundamental to the franchise. And just to put into perspective what a challenge this is today, about a third of county election offices don't have a basic web page or website with information about voting at all. So that's where we are. About 960 counties don't have any information about local elections online. Um, and that would be not as big of a problem if it weren't for the fact that they are often the only folks that know about um, local elections that are coming up or know about local ballot information. So one of the tools that we developed at CTCL is a simple website template that is used, uh, designed using research-based best practices for how uh, voters navigate election websites that an election official uh, with any sort of tech background or none at all can actually use to publish their information and maintain. Um, another thing that we do uh, in pretty close partnership with folks like Seth is uh, we publish uh, a standardized national data set of all of the ballot information um, on one's ballot all the way down to the local level that's available through tools like the Google Civic Information API so folks can find that information online. From a policy perspective, I think at a minimum folks should be able to register to vote online. Um, we are seeing huge strides. Folks like TurboVote have done a lot of work from um, an outside of government perspective to make that process easier and more streamlined and hopefully we'll see about the 15 or so states that are left to go actually implement some systems to let folks register to vote online. And we're also seeing um, some folks that are really uh, being bold, uh, about five states who have recently passed a legislation or enacted uh, the ability for folks to just automatically be registered to vote when they go to a place like the DMV. And so that is something that's really exciting to see. And then when it comes to actually casting about one example of something that I think is a really promising example of what the future holds is a project that's happening out in LA County. Um, the LA County uh, Recorders or Register of Voters Office uh, worked with uh, the company IDEO um, to work on designing what uh, the sort of election system of the future looks like. And they have a prototype of it looks like someone coming into a polling place, having a tablet in front of them, being able to cast their vote on, a, uh, on the tablet, um, then printing out sort of a paper form. Uh, that would be put into a ballot box. You also could potentially uh, mark on your smartphone before you got there what your ballot, what your selections are on a ballot, go into a polling place, transfer that onto um, paper, and have your vote cast. This seems like um, something that is pretty similar to the experience now, but what makes it really different is that it was developed with a real focus on the user, uh, which is something that's very different than sort of the current system um, of elections. And they're really, you know, LA County is on the real cutting edge of this, but when we are thinking about sort of where the rest of the country is, uh, one story that I like to share is that one election official that I worked with this year, um, three years ago, he assumed office at, in his county. When he got there, the first order of business was to get rid of all of the typewriters uh, and replace them with computers um, because they did not have computers in their office prior 
prior to him getting there. Uh, so we have a long way to go uh, to modernizing this work, and it's not just a tech challenge, it's an organizing challenge, and it's a huge culture shift. And we're really hoping to support election officials in that massive culture shift so that voters are getting what they need. Thank you. So, Ray, everybody knows that startups and big technology companies face an incredible pressure to make profit. And I've heard you say, I remember this from when we were uh, did an event in San Francisco, that the logic of profit-driven technological innovation will produce reliably technologies like this iPhone 7 that reliably serve the needs of middle class and wealthy people, right? But you said that logic of profit-driven technological innovation will not serve the needs of poor people, right? And so what I want to ask you is what, first of all, why do you think that? And then second, what are a few of the things that we can do to make sure that the benefits of digital innovation do more than just trickle down to the disadvantaged people in our societies? So while, so while our country is slowly climbing out of the recession, there's still a large um, wealth inequality gap happening. Just you know, six miles south of, of you know, Harvard Square is Roxbury, Dorchester on the east, there's Chelsea and Revere, and people are literally struggling to live on dollars a day in low-income communities. And that's the same throughout the country. In San Francisco, we have very similar communities as well. And so, you know, we see in these communities, while folks are using technology, like, I, I agree, like, if we advance in technology, like, and, and smartphones get cheaper, you'll see, like, internet access become cheaper for folks. That is just one part of the uh, process that you need. Like, having these systems deliver technology and, and information is one step of the issue. Uh, but now we need tools and products and services specifically for uh, low-income and marginalized communities. Uh, and there's like the, the, a huge opportunity in this space right now to improve this because like literally very, very few people are even thinking about how do you innovate on uh, nonprofit and governmental services. For example, one of the things that we're tackling right now at One Degree is that uh, the issue that on average low-income families use up to 12 different nonprofit services to smooth their income, to survive, and to get by. That's everything from uh, affordable housing to childcare to legal services, etc. That's also 12 different paper applications, 12 different bus trips just to go and sign up for the service, 12 different regular trips to access those types of services. Uh, why? And and one of the things that we're working on is how do we make just the process of finding those resources easier? Because most of the time, people hear about these services through word of mouth or through uh, like their case manager. Uh, but why can't we have a system that is as easy as buying a book on Amazon? Why can't we have a system where folks can easily find the portfolio of services that they, that they need to climb the ladder of opportunity? And that's the system that we're building uh, with One Degree. So over the last four years, we've kind of like built out this uh, demonstration of what we can do with this uh, service in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And so we built a consumer-facing front-end resource database that makes it easy for folks to find resources that they're eligible for. And now we're entering a new phase in the organization where we've proven that uh, folks will use this. Uh, a lot of the questions that I had in the beginning were, do poor people even use the internet? Or do poor people have access to computers? And we've, we've proven that that's, that's the case. 
fortunately, that's something that we had to prove to funders and everybody out there who was like <laughs> questioning this. And actually, one, one statistic I'll give you is that um, there was a Pew Research study done a few years ago. 77% of uh, low-income folks below the age of 30 have access to the internet via smartphones, and that was three years ago. So now it's probably more like 85%. Um, so folks are, have access to these these resources and to technology. And so the next phase, uh, for one degree, uh, looks like how do we do this on a systems level? How do we integrate this, these processes and these technologies within institutions? So uh, one of the first exciting partnerships we have in this next phase is with LA County Department of Health Services. And we have a contract with LA County to integrate a new one degree referral management system within LA County uh, clinics and hospitals. So that now, when you, if you are a low income person going into uh, one of these clinics in, in Los Angeles, you might, uh, in the past, you might need some sort of service like food pantry or legal services, and the nurse may or may not know of the resources in their community, uh, oftentimes not. Now what they can do, uh, they'll be trained on how to find these resources on Wondery. They can look it up on their phone and on their computers. The nurse can then send, uh, send them a text message, an email, a Facebook message, send out a printout, and give them those resources, kind of like a prescription, directly as they're leaving and being discharged from the clinic or the hospital. And so we're, we're starting to do more of this kind of work where we're integrating these services uh, directly into institutions that, that can scale much broadly. So we're very excited about that. Good. Denise, um, so your organization, Smart Chicago, is devoted to making Chicago a smart city or even smarter city than it already is, more than this, the city of big shoulders. You're, uh, you're doing that from a collaboration between philanthropy, government, and nonprofit, this kind of mixed organization. So what I wanted to ask you is what in your view would be a home run in the smart city space? Like what would be the technological plus policy innovation contribution that would make things substantially better for a large number of people living in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I think the one in Boston, the it's, it's kind of like second base or third base hit. The <laughs> thing that's made my life a lot better is the Where's My Bus app that the GPSs can tell you exact. It's significant, right? But so, but that's like a second base, third base hit. What would be a home run? So it's interesting. When you ask this question, um, I started to think, okay, what would that app look like? What would that tool look like? And I actually don't know if it would be the home run would be like an app or a tool. I think it would be more like a process, honestly, because there are always going to be great innovative tools, apps. Um, there's going to be new open data that's released by the city um, and new like um, tools and technology um, inevitably that will be built um, either prof by professional institutions or um, volunteer hackers. And I think what would be truly innovative would be kind of a process that is driven by values. Um, something that, you know, ensures that if we become a smart city through a tool, through new technology, through the Internet of Things, no matter what new innovation it is, that it's truly inclusive. And so having a process for any kind of new project that arises that's civic and to make sure that it's inclusive, that there's um, governance um, involved, people can be involved in the project, that if it's a tool, it's usable, it's accessible, uh, whether that means language or whether that just means usability, and that it's welcoming too. Um, so as an example for the city of Chicago, right now, and, and maybe some of you have heard, we have a new project in the city called Array of Things. 
So it's uh, an Internet of Things initiative. Um, there are 500 multipurpose sensors that are going up around the city of Chicago. There are 50 up uh, now. And Smart Chicago, we partnered with this project, and we led a civic engagement um, piece of the project um, in partnership with the University of Chicago, the operators of Array of Things, and the city of Chicago. So really what that meant was we wanted to make sure that um, this project, as it was rolled out, um, that people knew about it um, and people were uh, included in the project, that they were broadly engaged in it. So there was a privacy and governance policy that was published by the city of Chicago. Um, we put it up on an open Gov Foundation tool called My Madison. You can actually see the draft privacy policy online if you look it up. Um, but people were able to annotate the policy and uh, give feedback on the policy. We also had straight up Parks and Rec style public meetings. Um, <laughs> people cracked many Leslie Nope jokes at me like during that period of my life, which I appreciated. Um, and <laughs> but I mean, that process itself, I think, was innovative and it made me think and it made um, my peers and coworkers think, okay, like, what is this process? What is this equation? And how can we apply it? to other projects. Like five, ten years ago, we couldn't really um, think about what the Internet of Things would look like in the city of Chicago. But we can create a process um, that can be applied to any new technology or innovation that will happen five, ten years from now um, with a checklist is, um, are we making sure it's inclusive? Are we having meetings in neighborhoods? Um, uh, is there a way for residents to directly engage with this technology? Uh, can they interact with the technology? Um, so. I would say a home run would be to, to put that framework on top of everything else that happens next. And we try and do this with other things too. Um, Smart Chicago, we run something uh, called the Civic User Testing Group, and we pay residents of the city of Chicago and Cook County to test new apps and websites when they come out. And as like a non-governmental entity, technically we have the freedom to do that. We can like pay residents to, <laughs> to test those, um, those new tools. And it really, you know, whether it's the new Ventra app, like the transportation app for the city of Chicago, or actually tonight we're doing a test on the new open data portal. Uh, we redesigned the open data portal for the city, so we're partnering with the city government to do that. And that's sort of another, uh, another way or another process, I suppose. No matter what the tool is that we're putting that process on, that I think would make us a smarter city and a more inclusive city. Thank you very much. So, uh, Seth, yesterday I was reading the Wall Street Journal, as I do sometimes, not every day, but sometimes, and I read that uh, Turbo TurboVote has recently worked out deals with several large companies, Google, Facebook, Starbucks, among others, with an eye toward increasing voter participation. And so your idea is that you got to work with these big companies, really, if you want to move the dial on voter engagement. And so that's a relatively new idea. Most GOTV registration stuff does not really go through for-profits. It's nonprofits, it's advocacy groups, it's political parties out there signing people up. So talk a little bit about this, the private part of this public-private partnership and what's driving that. Absolutely. I'll also say that it's, I think the way we ultimately increase participation is going to involve overhauling the system with election administrators, but that this, even if we do that, to mobilize all of society to vote more, it's going to take all of society. Um, and so I, I don't see it as an exclusive thing as, as what we're doing. I don't want to take the focus too much off of, of government. But um, in terms of c companies, 
getting involved in, in civic engagement, I think there are a few big wins in doing that. So one, in the past, I, I would say the, the groups that have done the most voter engagement are usually presidential campaigns and parties. And uh, a lot of societies sort of just left it up to them. Like, they'll do it. And I would say, actually, that has been the failure, mm-hmm. uh, that we have sort of the rest of society said, oh, that's someone else's interest. That's a very clear self-interest. They're not trying to get to 80% turnout. <laughs> they're trying to get to 51, 52, you know, they're trying to get to 51% voting for them. And, and so those interests are not necessarily aligned. And so part of it is, like, how can we get everyone to take responsibility for voter engagement, not just campaigns and parties? Second is, I, I would say that for some companies have more of a platform than others. And some huge parts of our public square are privately owned. Like Facebook is a privately owned company where we now have our public square. And I think it is for the, it's better for our society if companies like that see themselves as having responsibility to society and democracy and not just to shareholders. And so the more they embrace sort of like civic responsibilities and set that norm for their peers, that's also better for our society too. And the, the last thing I'll, I'll say is that I also think in terms of, um, you know, companies are, though, they do have their own interests in, like, our public sphere. And uh, I feel more comfortable with companies trying to influence the public, like, influence public policy through getting their employees and customers to participate in voting than I do in campaign contributions or other things that our system allows. So I also think it's, like, even when it comes to things like campaign finance reform, I would rather companies participate in voter turnout than anything else. And I think my last thought on it is that uh, I think companies can help. I think a lot of people stay away from voting because anything, we have such a polarized society right now where everything feels so political um, that people don't share what they're thinking. They're afraid to even like talk about voting or like that they want to other people to vote unless they feel like they're in a very safe political space with people they know they agree with them. And I think it is healthier for our society if we can break that. And when people be like, no, talking about everyone voting is a safe thing to say. It is everyone can say that. You should all be voting. Um, you're not going to get shouted down or punished for that. And so part of it is like rebranding voting as something safe that companies can do in a, in a way that they made like supporting gay rights a mainstream thing um, over the past five years also. That's great. Very good. So thank you all for the work that you're doing and for the thoughts that you shared today. I just wanted to make one observation before opening it up, which is to say how hard your job is to get stuff started, but especially to grow it. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I think civic tech and public sector tech is is not as far along as one might think it ought to be or that it you think it might have gotten further is that it's just hard to grow it, right? So when, you know, me and a few million other people buy iPhones, it's nothing but gravy for Tim Cook. And he can take that money and design and manufacture the next iPhone, right? That's how it works. But if a quarter of the people in San Francisco use one degree or, uh, or of that population that is affected, or even 100% of it, or if voting, if you, Seth, realize your goal and our collective goal of getting to 80% voter participation or 100% voter participation, or the open data in Chicago gets you know half the eyeballs in Chicago looking at it, 
there is no automatic way to make your organization bigger or more successful. And indeed, on the voting front, you'll probably make a lot of enemies who want to shut you down, right? And so there is a fundamental disanalogy between civic and private and public sector tech and how it innovates and gets bigger, right, compared to private sector technological innovation. There is an automatic mechanism of selection and growth and development in private sector technology in a way that there just isn't in many, many public applications. And so that is one of a fundamental challenge and something that you all are gradually in a very scrappy and admirable way overcoming. But it's just not automatic as it is for uh, the private sector logic. So uh, with that cheery observation, I will <laughs> open it up now. People have put a lot of ideas and experiences and policy issues on the table, and I think there are probably a lot of questions. Yeah. Hi. Uh, really, really uh, fascinating uh, stuff over here. Um, my question actually is for Denise, which is an incredibly inspiring story, uh, talking about, you know, your, uh, or the analogy, sorry, rather, never mind, I'll just jump into it. Never mind. Okay. So, uh, with smart cities, uh, especially when you're talking about, you know, the kiosks and the other, like, internet of things enabled devices that have been um, placed hand in hand with various vendors um, across cities, I was really, really heartened to hear you saying that part of the process was having the Leslie Nope style, you know, town hall where you invite people in to discuss uh, the really, really serious privacy issues. I come from a digital security and, you know, like, privacy advocacy background. So this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, and I'm also a New Yorker where our story was totally different, where um, the link New York City kiosks came um, with very, very little, uh, you know, insight into you know, the, the vendor selection and the data points that were going to be taken and things like that. So in your town hall, uh, what were people's primary concerns and how did you educate them beforehand so they can have, you know, that town hall where everyone was so, so informed about the privacy issues? Yeah. Oh, no, that's a great question. And um, I love your observation. I think that, you know, more and more we're going to see, people are going to see technology in the, you know, in the public way on sidewalks, on traffic lights, and they deserve to recognize what it is and what it does. I think that, uh, so for, in the case of Chicago, um, I will like start by disclaiming, I don't think we did it perfectly. In fact, I'm really looking forward to following how other cities handle it um, to see how we can improve it in the future. <coughs> actually, we wrote a report, and I think that my, I actually had an Ash Summer Fellow that helped with this work, and she might be here. Um, yes, Glynis, just raise your hand. You can have her about it too. <laughs> um, so that was great. The Ash Center was involved in that, in that project. But the, um, uh, the town hall meetings, um, so I was, I told several people, um, uh, either like my family, friends in Chicago, oh yeah, we're going to have public meetings in Chicago about data, privacy, and the Internet of Things. People were like, good luck, you know, um, <laughs> who will come, like, is it, does anyone care? Um, people, people cared, like, um, they weren't like banging the doors down on the meetings um, to come in necessarily, but like, I, people were very um, interested, and I was actually, um, I was shocked to see like people asking a lot of technical questions. Like they were genuinely curious about the technology. The way the media covered it, and I think some of the assumptions that people I just had uh, conversations with before these events were that the public will just, they just assume the public is going to be scared of technology. Um, and I feel like we've underestimated residents to this point where like we won't, I don't know, it, it, was, it was sort of disheartening to me. 
And I was happy to see some of those assumptions overturned. Still, I, I will say one of the lessons I learned, and, and we wrote about um, kind of the lessons that we learned from our process and the way we'd recommend other cities um, to do engagement on these projects differently, possibly, um, in a report. Uh, and I can share the link on Twitter later. But one of the lessons was I wish we had informed people more before the like engagement process started. So it's really hard to inform and engage at the same time. Like the Internet of Things is not a dinner time conversation piece, right? And so like it's hard to tell people what it is and then at the same time ask them to like intelligently react to it like so what do you think of this like what are your thoughts about privacy so if I were to go back and, and do this again um, I would try and have an informational or like uh, just awareness campaign before the actual engagement and like privacy campaign uh, yeah uh, so my question kind of was raised by a lot of your points across the panel so Tiana you were talking about kind of culture norms that you um, have been trying to combat. I can imagine the same problem would be there for one degree and for also giving greater access to voting. So there are people who normatively don't want certain people to have greater access to certain processes and certain institutions. So how are you combating kind of those normative, like we don't really care if people have more access to social services or we don't really care if everyone's voting because I don't think everyone should vote or I don't think every like we should even have social services available as often or whatever you're individually counting encountering in different streams of increasing civic participation yeah. I can start with that so we structured our work really deliberately thinking about some of the challenges around folks who are not into increasing access to civic participation and voting um, by focusing specifically on being policy agnostic. So we don't do work around increasing the number of states that have uh, online voter registration or other things. And instead, we focused on the government employees who some are elected, a lot of them aren't, whose job really is just to implement the laws that they have in their given states and figure out how we can get them to most effectively implement those laws in a way that baked into that is around increasing information and engagement and access. And so as you know, through all of my conversations with these uh, local election officials at the county and municipal level, they really have this deep commitment to democracy and they have this deep commitment to doing their jobs well. And they only get stories written about them when they do something wrong. Um, it's a really thankless job. And there is a huge incentive for them to have folks to support them in doing their work in a way that they can have pride about it and have great stories written about it. And um, that ultimately looks like being more effective at informing folks and engaging folks. And so it's a really specific lens that we chose to work through um, so that we, um, you know, there's lots of other people who are excellent at the work of litigation around voting rights and doing policy work. Um, and we saw this as a really specific niche that we could work in that was focused on just helping these folks uh, do their work more effectively and ultimately having that bigger benefit of increased participation. So while we're riffing on elections, I just want to add, there was a very hopeful story last year of around, I think, county election administrators and how lucky we are that they have some good <laughs> cultural norms around <laughs> access. In Florida last year, um, a coalition of 67 county election administrators, Republican and Democrat, pushed through an online voter registration bill mm -hmm. through Republican-dominated assembly and Senate, Republican governor, if you're just sort of 
sort of looking at the numbers like or sort of biased against like that'll never happen but they were unanimous bipartisan because a lot of these reforms increase access and save costs mm -hmm. and improve uh, security and so there actually there are a lot of wins that align with a, like a bunch of different norms for the leaders in that space and ultimately when it comes to county election directors they are the most powerful force I think in society for changing our election laws no election law gets passed that they want to veto and they're the only ones sometimes who can get something through a legislature because they're like we're actually doing it like we know what it's going to take mm -hmm. and similarly by taking a by start, both of us starting organizations that's like we're not trying to sue you <laughs> we're able to we're here to support you um, there's actually a lot of room to work I have two questions first of all Denise you referred to open data what is that oh that's a great question <laughs> and like I apologize for not like explaining the I feel like I made the this mistake that I often like um, dislike when well, other people do it where they just throw out the terminology and they don't explain it. Yeah, no, open data is uh, data usually released from a city government, county government, federal government that is free and usable. Um, you can download it, you can merge it with other data. Um, uh, civic technologists or people that will build apps and websites will often use the open data um, to make maps or build, yeah, build applications. If other pe I'm sure there are other people that can provide a better uh, explanation, yeah, okay. too. Okay, good? All right. That's okay. Yeah. But thank you for checking my jargon. That was, okay. that was very useful. My second question is, I assume when we actually cast ballots, there will be paper backups. But how can you prevent the websites of various election offices from being hacked, like by the Russians or anyone else? So the question is about websites specifically? Yeah, or? election websites. What are you going to do to improve their security about, yeah, so they won't be hacked? So there's been a lot of, I think, conversation in the news right now about uh, security of elections. And in particular, um, I think that the concern is less about, you know, a, a website that's public facing and has a lot of information that's already public and just really wouldn't affect the franchise and more about some of the internal databases that include information about registering voters um, and other information like that. And there has been a lot of effort recently, especially from the federal government, to sort of intervene and help uh, election officials figure out how to um, be more prepared around security issues. But one of the things that's really challenging about elections is how decentralized the process is, that there are nearly eight thousand different entities that run elections but that's actually also a really big safe redundancy when it comes to thinking about uh, the potential for hacking an election um, the really decentralized system makes it uh, very difficult and it's aggregated you get state totals you know and then it flows into the so the I mean so when it comes to election results the information that's published online on election night is not the those are you know unofficial results, there's a whole two-week process called canvassing that happens that's different in different localities that includes recounting paper ballots and, you know, ultimately coming up with the certified results that's outside of what you see on election night. It's a really robust process. And one of the things that we encourage folks to do is talk with any of their local election officials about being able to observe uh, or learn more about their processes, including all of the steps that they take prior to an election, um, doing logic and accuracy tests on machines, and then moving into the different uh, parts around counting ballots at the end.
So they talk about uh, increasing turnout, and historically our highest turnout was as a result of, of party membership and party activity. And uh, I wonder if there is an opportunity for a new form of party, a high-tech form of party that would create a modern partisan experience somewhat analogous to the partisan experience that generated high turnout historically. And, you know, the, the question of, of turnout, it's not just that people should turn out, but also that they should vote right. So, uh, you know, I don't want people who uh, are voting, uh, turning out and voting for the wrong people. <laughs> complicated, right? That's Democracy. always a challenge. So it's a challenge. Um, so I, so I um, am a big history nerd on the history of voting. And so uh, a few things that actually turn out um, in presidential elections hovered around 80% through the Civil War to around 1880. And so this is after freed black men are allowed to vote. This is before women are allowed to vote, and it main, it's maintained in the, into the 80s. And the, one of the big changes is a process change. The introduction of the Australian ballot um, in the 1880s is basically the first time you have the actual, um, you have to go into an individual polling place with a blank ballot. You need to know how to read, and then you need to like know who it is on the ballot, make your selection, and uh, it's at the same time with the rise of voter registration lists. And so uh, before that, you would pick up a completed ballot from the people that you would just have, like, parties would hand them out. Lots of people would be like, here's a completed ballot, and you would grab it, and then you would walk it into a polling place. So you just needed to know that you trusted the person giving you the ballot. You didn't have to know how to read. It was more social. And um, so in that sense, pro process really has a huge impact, and especially because those tools, even though they were introduced by nominally a progressive movement at the time, they had a racist intent. And they were then used during the Jim Crow era to slash turnout. They were tools that were then abused. And for me, I think one of the futures of voting that I'm really um, optimistic about is a very seamless, reliable vote-by-mail process. Because I think when people can vote by mail, they can also vote next to their laptops and have access to information. A lot of people who are even regular voters will have the experience of going to a voting a polling place, knowing who they're going to vote for at the top of the ticket, and then have like two or three names that they don't recognize. And so the ability to actually vote, it's crazy that we have a system that is designed to keep you from information when you are in the act of voting. So I, I, I think there's a lot we can do with design, ultimately, to inform voters and, and uh, help with access. Uh, you've had your hand up for a while. Oh, thank you. Um, so for those of us interested in civic tech, to what extent do you think it's important to develop like programming skills? And if so, what languages or applications or visualization skills would you recommend <coughs> we develop? And just in general, how can we plug in? I'll, I'll answer that. So I, I have a technology organization. I have zero programming skills. We, <laughs> that's the truth. I yesterday I asked my engineer, I was like, do you know JavaScript? And he's like, yes, Ray. <laughs> JavaScript is like the basic thing, <laughs> the basic framework. So I'm not the techie person in my group. Um, but when I first started One Degree, I built that original first platform. Uh, I used off-the-shelf products 
uh, I, I learned very, very like basic HTML to kind of like whip things together. I spent less than $500, worked with two volunteers, and we got this first original prototype up and running in San Francisco. And in that first, uh, first three months, I wanted 1,000 people to use this early stage prototype. Uh, and I was very mortally embarrassed by this. And I was told by a founder of a, a tech company that if you're not embarrassed by your first prototype, you didn't do a good job because <laughs> you, know, you, you want to get it out there quickly. So by the end of the three-month time period, I looked at their, our data, and over 3,500 people used it. And I knew that we were onto something. And that told me that I, I needed to get somebody with tech competence on the team who could think the way I think about the vision of the, of the product and build it. Because you know, I'm sure you're very smart. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of your talented people. Uh, but it's not worth your time if you don't know the, the tech skills to learn them because you could be finding someone who's like 10 times smarter than you on the tech side of things to actually build it and like be the visionary of that for, for you on your team. So that's, that's my recommendation. I mean, I would agree. The only thing that I've ever coded was in Python. It was a gin and tonic calculator. <laughs> um, and I think that one of, you know, there are, are lots of skills that you can build to be really effective in civic tech that aren't just around coding. And yeah. one of them is really under figuring out how to assess people's needs and tie that to specific solutions and then communicate that with folks who are technologists and uh, make those things come into fruition. And having sort of that bridge of being able to communicate through between these different communities is something that's really valuable and sometimes missing in this space. I agree. I, I would just say, like, be like know enough to be like tech literate so you can manage like technical projects and technical people. If there had been like a project management class at the Kennedy School for like technology mm -hmm. projects, oh, that's the thing I would have taken. Oh my gosh, I don't, wish. Don't Actually, I, can, I don't know if any of us can code. Can you code? No. Yeah, no. None of us can code. The only thing I would add is that um, <laughs> well, like, if, with, if anyone ever, like when you are working with technologists, if someone can't explain to you what they are doing or building um, and make you to feel like it is your fault. They don't understand what they're doing. Um, and so just to have that peace of mind with you uh, as you embark yeah. in your work in civic But Katie tech. can code. Well, so <laughs> she's your she, yeah, so, um, uh, she can manage technical projects, and she does get into the code <laughs> and uh, creates trouble. Um, <laughs> that's what she calls it. Uh, but uh, I actually think this is a really important point so to Harbon. No one does a startup alone. Like, there is this big entrepreneur hero myth that is very bad for our culture. Yeah, exactly. It is all about having teams. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the, best, the biggest skill you need is team building, I think. That's true. Yeah, that's a very fruitful question. I, I'd like to respectfully push back a little on the notion that um, it's not worth learning to code. It, you could become a really awesome programmer in less than a year uh, if you worked at it. If you did it in part-time in addition to your job, you could do it in a couple of years. Um, and even learning a little bit of it helps you really understand a lot more about what's possible and what you can accomplish by partnering with people. So I think it's a wonderful message to send that you don't need to know how to code, but you could totally learn how to code very quickly. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. But I also think yeah, that, yeah. that if that's what your passion is in, as it relates to technology, then that's yeah. what you should mm -hmm. do. Right. Yeah, go ahead. I, I wanted to add to that and say uh, I would start out learning an object-oriented language, something like Ruby, Ruby on Rails, PHP, 
um, and learn a, learn a relational database like MySQL or a document date and followed by a document database like MongoDB. I didn't learn how to code until I was 25, and I uh, and I uh, it was out of necessity, um, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I did learn in a year at 25 how to how to code something quite substantial, and I, I think it's it's made me far better at communicating to people who have serious compu computer science degrees what what I need at my company or my project, or, or also know when someone's selling me a bill of goods, which <laughs> they often they will do. do. But my my question <coughs> is is going back to the to issues like voting. Is it possible that when we're in this space that we're, you know, we're a hammer and we have, imagine every problem is a nail? Because couldn't we, you know, make voting easier by just making us have to vote for less offices less often? Like, who, who the hell, you know? I mean, it, 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 but the real question is, do we think everything's a nail because we're a hammer? I'll be honest, I don't really understand the question. But I think I'm going to take a shot at it. It's also, for me, I'm driven to this solution because I think our politics are very, there aren't a lot of new pieces of legislation coming through right now that are going to consolidate all of, like, change the number of offices we have or that have constitutional amendments in them. Like, our democracy isn't doing that right now. But one thing it is doing is, like, there are election administrators at the county and state level who care really deeply <laughs> about providing a good service and they're not, no one's really serving them really well with good technology and training. And so, like, that's something I could do, like, in this moment to make voting more accessible. I'm open to other moonshot ideas for our democracy, but I think it's important to put it through an impact lens, which maybe is the, like, hammer and yell question. Like, yeah, I think you should put everything through an impact lens. Like, what's actually going to work? Um, and if it's a nail, then yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Melissa, did you? Hey. This is fantastic and really inspiring. Um, I have a question for, for Seth and Tiana both. So I'm really intrigued by and, and by the importance and the value of using technologies to increase, uh, to make the election process smoother, to increase um, voter registration and participation and so on. But I have a little bit of a worry about unintended biases uh, that might result from these endeavors. So say, for example, if you look at the role of big social media or tech companies in voter registration uh, or voter, voter turnout movements, that sounds fantastic. And, you know, the more the better, I think, is our intuitive response. On the other hand, it may be that simply using those instruments of increasing voter turnout may generate biases in the turnout patterns that, that are unanticipated, unintended, perhaps. So even with all the good intentions in the world, there may be patterns of systemic bias that result from these efforts. And so I'm just, I'm sure you've encountered that and thought about it. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts By have been. By systemic bias, do you mean like a company manipulating who sees it so that a candidate, like their CEO likes wins? Or like what, what's the... Well, that would be intended bias. Okay. So an unintended bias would be that, say, for example, if you have an intensification of efforts by Facebook or Google or whomever to increase voter participation, then that's going to skew the voter the turnout uh, patterns um, in favor of those who are using those social 
media. Now that may turn out to and be the employers and users, right? And yeah, a, and, and against people who are using one dimension. Right, right, right. Question. So, so that would be an unintended bias. It's not that there's any conspiracy right, to right. skew turnout in in favor of their preferred party or candidate, but there could be an unintended skewing. I mean, I I think there's a few responses. One is that um, voters are looking, like for example, at Google. Google's decided to build these tools because people are searching for them. Like, we have the data. People will be like, how do I do this? And Google's like, oh, we can't really give you a good enough answer there. And uh, same with Facebook. People, like, so part of it is their consumer demand. If people are trying to use these tools to do these things and they are meeting that demand in the best way that they can. I would say our democracy is unintentionally skewed by not reaching voters through new digital methods. Um, and that, that for me is the bigger concern as our whole society moves online, uh, we risk not connecting younger generations to our democracy. And like, try telling a 18 year old to fax in a form. Um, <laughs> and, and then say that, you know, oh, well, you know, it might, you know, I, I, I even actually remember, I, I tweeted this a while ago, I, I can't remember, but. Um, the first time like, an election debate was like broadcast on the radio. They were like, is this going to skew the results um, of an election? It won't be pure. Everyone will be learning something through the radio at the same time. So I, I think some of these things are just we're in an open, like, technology-embracing society. And so it's better to experiment with it than not. So I adore all of you, and I'm very impressed by your work. I am horrified at you guys hustling for funders because taxpayers already funded literally everything you described. So my question is, and it was sort of interesting to hear you say, like, it's hard because there's not a market. We almost got $2 trillion in personal uh, tax payments last year as, as just on the federal level. Um, so my question is... It's called for. <laughs> yeah. We, we already have an American startup called America. Um, and... <laughs> It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the city of Chicago can't pay an honorarium for users. It actually can. It doesn't. It's, I, I know your work very well in that these election officials, they could be doing this kind of research too. So I have two questions. One question is, what job could exist in government that would make you want to go work there and change this from the inside instead of begging them to change from the outside? And the second question is, this, been, correct me if I'm wrong, this sounds like giant design gaps for all of you. Do you see something that will one day change government to care about that gap rather than letting those like adorable civic tech people take care of it? <laughs> Good question. I, I do think, for me, massive participation in our democracy is a good way to solve some of these issues because government serves who votes. Um, and so... I do think that is a good way to focus government's attention on everyone, is if everyone is voting. But what job would you take? Or create? So in the federal government right now, the person who's most doing what we're trying to do is the EAC, the Election Assistance Commission, which has, is, was created by Congress to assist states and counties with um, upgrading their technology. Um, they are worried they're not going to exist next year because they always have trouble. They had the longest-running... Um, gap without commissioners because Congress w wasn't appointing their commissioners to the EAC, and we've had we've great relationships with them. We've good meetings with them. They're like, thank you for filling the gap while we were out. And I think there is also still resistance among a lot of states and counties 
to just do whatever the federal government tells them to do. And if that was, a lot of this stuff is just specific to America. Like, we're the only country in the world, only democracy in the world without federally run elections. And so a lot of other countries, it's easy to overhaul their system because there's one system. And because we're the oldest continually functioning democracy, there are 50 states that have very little power overseeing somewhere between, you know, 3,800, you know, 3,000 counties and including towns, like maybe up to 13,000. And I, we want to modernize all of them, and I'm not sure there is a different way to do it. Like, I don't know, I don't think, I can't imagine a federal job that would exist to do that because it would mean that Congress is wholly supportive of it and the states are wholly supportive of it. So that's my challenge. Uh, I think I didn't clarify the way um, Archon mentioned it in his question, but I didn't clarify that Smart Chicago. We actually are very closely tied to the city, um, and it's sort of an interesting approach that Chicago's taken. Um, so our organization is co-steered by the city of Chicago, the MacArthur Foundation, and the Chicago Community Trust. And so I kind of love being at the intersection of, of government and, and philanthropy, um, in that way, I would take a lot of jobs in government. And I used to work for the federal government. Um, and so, and I really genuinely enjoyed, you can like tweet about this, I'm saying it, I enjoyed working for the federal government. I really enjoyed it. I just left to go to the Kennedy School. Um, and the, I think that one thing that this experience has taught me, we work very closely with Brenda Berman's office. Um, and like right now, I think somewhere, Sonia Marziano, my colleague, is with, you know, do it employees sitting in a, local uh, public library of the city of Chicago, like testing the open data portal with residents. But I've learned through that experience too, by wearing both hats, I feel like there's a lot nationally um, and more philanthropy can do in the civic tech space. And so I think to counter your very important question with another very important question is what more can place-based foundations do um, to support civic tech? David Eves gets the last question. <laughs> So my, I have a question that kind of relates back to your original comment, Archon, and then Erie, yours, which is actually, I think that the question is, flawed. I, when I look at the, the people in the, here, they're saying, I don't want to go work in a county. I'm actually, they're all trying to achieve systems level change, which is actually very, very hard to do when you're located in a very specific jurisdiction, which is why they're not in actually in a government role. And for me, that kind of relates to what I think was actually a flawed start, Archon, which is, I think Apple is very, very different from what these guys are doing, not for the reasons you state, um, but because you all have to deal with a highly fractured market that's actually quite capitally small. Like, like it's, there's not a ton of consumers. There's not a ton of users at the administrative level. It's very, very small, but it's also highly fractured. Um, and that has real benefits, and there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of people trying different things. But it's all frustrating because you can't do with the kind of change you're talking where you make, take, take it across the board. What responsibility do you feel you have around the solutions you create harmonizing things and making things simpler for users and simpler for administrators, but at the same time not robbing the diversity that makes them kind of local and representative. Because technology can, can do either one of those things, but you kind of need to make choices in the things that you do that will prioritize one outcome or the other. So I'm curious, like, where do you each fall down on that? That's an interesting question. Um, I can talk a little bit about our methods for our election toolkit recently and how we sort of think about the fact that we have jurisdictions that we're working with that have 10,000 registered voters and we have places that are like suburban Cook County that have multiple million. And 
Our approach to the election toolkit, which is like a set of a dozen different types of tools that election officials can customize and use in their own communities, was bringing together about 20 officials that represented really small communities, very large ones, ones in the middle, um, and going through a day-long session that allowed them to set priorities and ultimately name challenges and uh, tools that they would like to see to be able to be more effective at their work. And we did this sort of collection of ideas also at uh, election official conferences in states that range from Florida to New Jersey to MIOC, which is all of the Midwestern states together. And the way that we think about this is that we, our tools are one sort of come from this different set of diverse needs of different types of populations, whether they're rural or urban or in between, but also that each of the tools are things that folks can customize for their specific communities. So um, whether that is using one of the free infographic tools to be able to create messages that are specific to communicating about elections in your jurisdiction, or making your website actually responsive to the needs of the folks in your specific community, they have that latitude um, while also sort of lifting up tools that can be used in these different contexts. So, can I answer that? Yeah, great. So, I, I heard a saying that you know a lot of social entrepreneurs kind of like play at the fringes of social problems, and the real social change maker is government, right? And if you really want to take your your solution at scale, you have to work with government, and so. As a small organization, we aspire to work with government, and we're, we start, we're starting to do that work, as I mentioned, with L.A. County. But you're right, it's very fragmented, and it's very difficult to, to try to please different types of governmental agencies and different jurisdictions everywhere. Uh, one of the things that we are doing about that at, uh, at the organization is trying to understand kind of like the overall incentives that, that different agencies are, are looking at. So, for example, with the... Affordable Care Act, that changed incentives for healthcare systems all across the country very dramatically. So instead of being paid for healthcare by uh, usage of health services, uh, hospitals are now paid for making sure that their patients are actually uh, healthy and not coming back to the hospitals, uh, which is a huge opportunity for my organization because now uh, these health, health systems and hospitals are looking for ways to connect their patients to services outside of the hospital so that they get better outside of the hospital and don't come back to the hospital. And so we're trying to like find these interesting incentives so that we, so we can take advantage of those things and work with the system that way. And I also say that, you know, I, I've always said that if One Degree didn't have to be a nonprofit organization and if somebody like were to adopt it and take it and run with it and scale it, that, that's the ideal, right? And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a nonprofit, but we just wanted to make it a nonprofit in the beginning to, to elevate the conversation. And so if other folks take this and uh, take the concept and, and run with it and develop it in Boston or in Germany like they did recently, we are all about that. And we're, we're trying to think now, of like, how can we accelerate that? And so one of the concepts that we're working on right now is like, how do we develop a public utility, a community resource database that is a public utility, like water is a public utility? but instead is like the resources in our community. And so how do we like develop that for the entire country? Uh, and maybe that's the innovation that we're bringing to bear to, to the country. That's great. Thank you very much. So I wanted to return to the question about coding and the very the lively and, and super interesting exchange that occurred. And I want to return to that and also the comment about teams because what we're trying to do here in this technology and governance or civic tech space right now at the Ash Center or at the Kennedy School is to create a space in which people can acquire the mix of skills, either individually or 
in teams necessary to make progress on this general field, right? And the diagnosis is that up until now, there's been a lot of, there's been too much arrogance that's associated with particular disciplines. So, I mean, you talk to a lot of people in San Francisco, you talk to basically anyone at Google, and they think, look, a good set of engineering skills can solve all social and political problems, right? Which is not, you, not true. And you talk to policy people, and they treat the technologists very instrumentally and think all you need to know is the policy side of the equation. It's certainly my view that to the extent that progress comes in this space, it will come from sets of people who are equally competent or at least duly competent in both the policy and politics space on one hand and the technology space in the other. And right now there are precious few people. and. The conversation is, for me, has kind of validated that premise because, I mean, I listen to you guys talk and you're extremely articulate, both about the technology proposition at stake, but then also have a deep knowledge of the particular policy spaces that you're working in, whether it's electoral or social services, and of the organizational challenges, barriers that you need to overcome to make it work. And it's that particular combination of skills that needs to be fostered and nourished and the arrogance of thinking that one discipline knows it all, whether it's computer science or engineering on one hand or policy analysis on the other. I mean, that's just a mistaken way of thinking about it. It's the, the at the intersection will grow good things. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom and your experience.